You're listening to Uncommentary, the home of conversations and clarity. I'm your host, Marty Duran. In season one, I told you about my wife's cookie business, Sweet Life Cookies, and I have decided to keep her as a sponsor for season two. You need to buy some cookies from Sweet Life Cookies. Uh, original chocolate chip, double chocolate mint, white chocolate macadamia nut. Uh, she's even added an M&M variety, which is very popular with kids, as you know. Um, half dozens or dozens can be shipped anywhere in the, in the United States. Uh, if you're in the Middle Tennessee area, specifically if you're in the Nashville area, you can get the cookie trays, three dozen size, six dozen size. Uh, that will meet all your office and party needs. Go to mysweetlifecookies.com to place an order, or if you're interested in a tray, there's contact information there where you can give her the information about your get-together. Delivery is available in a limited range as well. So go to mysweetlifecookies.com. Check everything out. They are the best cookies in the world, and I ain't lying. My guest today on Uncommentary is Yusef Al-Khuri. I met Yusef in March 2019 while I was in Bethlehem in the West Bank in Israel. Uh, that is in the uh, Palestine, Palestinian territory of the West Bank. And uh, met him at Bethlehem Bible College where he is a lecturer. Um, we met him one morning. Uh, our group was there to listen to a lecture uh, at the school. And he had just suffered a family tragedy. And so he gave his presentation. And uh, we connected afterward. And he's a great guy, uh, born in Gaza and uh, now lives in Bethlehem, and I hope that you uh, enjoy this, especially if you are a follower of Jesus and you're interested in things uh, related to the Middle East and biblical prophecy and uh, the way things are interpreted related to Israel and the Palestinians and the Jews. Uh, this hopefully will be informative for you. Yusef Al-Khuri, welcome to Uncommentary. Thank you, Marty. Thank you for hosting me. It's a pleasure to be with you here. Um, so I'm going to guess that maybe you, like me, are not a household name, um, but you live in a part of the world that uh, faces some uh, some anxiety at times, but you're a Bible teacher and a lecturer, and you actually work at a Bible college. Why don't you tell everybody who you are? Yes, uh, my name is Yusuf Al-Khori, which means Joseph the Priest, and literal translation. I'm actually from Gaza, and I live in Bethlehem. And I work as a lecturer of theology and missions at Bethlehem Bible College. It's the only Bible school in the West Bank and Palestine in general that offers uh, biblical education in Arabic. And recently we uh, we started online program which reaches all over the world for Arabs who are interested in learning more and studying the Bible and the Word of God. One of the cool things is not all of your students there are Christians, right? You have a lot of Muslim students. So the school is open for everyone. Anyone wants to learn the Bible. Uh, we welcome all of our students. They can come and join to study uh, biblical studies program or mass media yeah. as we offer uh, multiple programs. And, uh, of course, uh, we have a program for tour guiding. Yeah. So our focus uh, also to serve uh, our community in Palestine too. That's awesome. Uh, a lot of a lot of folks may not realize that tour guiding is a big deal uh, in your part of the world. It's it's not um, it's not like another thing. There are a lot of people who work in that industry. So that, to me, that really fills a um, fills a gap from a good perspective. 
Yes, definitely. And also, you know, living in, in the Holy Land, you know, Palestine, Israel, and learning about the Bible and the land, the archaeology of the land, the places where Jesus walked, uh, Jesus died, Jesus buried and resurrected, is very important for people. And it became a good business for many uh, Christians and Muslims mm -hmm. uh, as well, you know, who come to Islam Bible College and learn how they can offer their knowledge and their experience of the Holy Land to the visitors. At the same time, I would say also it's an opportunity for us to be salt and light for the community around us, Christians and Muslims, uh, to see that uh, where they live is actually significant and has a root historical meaning and spiritual meaning for everyone around us. So you're from a part of the world that uh, a lot of listeners will be familiar with um, as Israel, but you don't live in um, what we think of when we think of Israel. You live in one of the one of the Palestinian territories, and you were born in the other one. Is that correct? That's right. I was born in Gaza, which is the other half of the country, um, and. Now I'm living in Bethlehem, the West Bank, Palestinian territory, which we would like to call it one day and for the whole uh, international community mm -hmm. to accept it as Palestine. Yeah. Um, so there, there'll be some folks, I think, who are surprised that there are, uh, A, Palestinian Christians, and, and B, uh, Palestinian Christians who are like active in preaching and teaching and theology, both in Gaza and the West Bank. Um, so we're, we got a, we got a lot that we can talk about today, and I'm really really excited that you're here. Um, and if you're listening by here, I mean connected by Skype. <laughs> I would love it if Yusef was in my house, but uh, we're just talking over Skype. Um, so give a little bit of history about, uh, first of all, kind of the, the realities of, of life on the ground, because most American Christians, I think, when we think of the, the modern Middle East, we go directly to 1948 with the creation of the, Israel, the, the state of Israel. And uh, a lot of theology plays into how people think about it. Uh, you know, there's dispensationalism and Christian Zionism and all those kinds of things. Uh, but give a little like actual history because your family's involved in this um, as much or as little as you feel like just kind of lay the groundwork for what we can talk about on top of it. Yes, you know, it's for many uh, people in the global church think about Palestinian Christians as a modern phenomena, you know, people who converted from Islam to Christianity and actually Christianity started in Palestine. It didn't start somewhere else mm -hmm. and Palestinian Christianity goes as early as the first century. Mm -hmm. And you can read the presence of Arabs in Acts 2. You know, there were Arabs in Jerusalem to worship in the temple while uh, Peter back then preached mm -hmm. his famous message. And they believed in Christ. And since then, we as Palestinian Christians consider the Pentecost is the start of the Palestinian church. Wow. My family goes as back as uh, 40, uh, 42 generations. Wow. My last name is is well known for Arabs, is Al-Khuri, which means the priest. And it, it's actually, I carry this name because of my heritage mm -hmm. and my family's heritage. 
and being in the priesthood of the Christian church in Palestine for a long time. That is amazing. Um, I heard a, a Palestinian pastor, I can't remember his name, and I saw him on YouTube, so it's not somebody that I've met personally, uh, who also could track his family back. And he, he made kind of a joke uh, that he imagined that his you know great-great-great-great-great-grandmother uh, babysat for Mary and Joseph, you know, when Jesus was a baby uh, in in the town there. Um, so so down through, uh, you know, the eons or the, the centuries, uh, the land was called uh, at at varying times Palestine. Uh, I have a, 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 a Bible that belongs to my great-grandmother or belonged to my great-grandmother, uh, and it was printed in 1946. And so when you go to the back that says, like, the Holy Land today, that's the map, uh, it's Palestine. It doesn't say future Israel. It says Palestine. And, uh, you know, the I think uh, the Romans referred to parts of it as Palestine, or at least in the post-Roman era. Um, uh, actually, that's true. I yeah. think your, uh, your information are accurate. The Romans started calling this land Palestine since 135 B.C. Wow. Okay, so um, so after World War One, or I guess pre World War One, uh, there were some people who, uh, under the Zionist movement, which was really a political movement, uh, were trying to negotiate uh, for a space for a Jewish homeland. Uh, I think there was a, a part of maybe Chile was looked at at one time. I think part of the Ethiopia was looked at at one time, and then of course uh, Palestine. And so the the most well-known name, I guess, is Theodore Herzl, and he and others began to promote this idea that um, people could that Jewish people could come back and live uh, in Palestine. And so they began to immigrate, and then post World War One, when the Ottoman Empire fell, uh, the land was kind of carved up. So. What happened in that kind of space leading up to 1948 and then what happened in 1948? We can talk about the foundation of Zionism and around 1897. Okay. Uh, Herzl, uh, famous speech about promising the Jews a homeland mm-hmm. in Palestine. Actually, that was right after uh, suggesting uh, Chile, Argentina, and some country in Africa, but it made more sense for him to encourage uh, Jewish immigrants to come to Palestine as their homeland, the promised land mm-hmm. in the Bible. Since then, many Palestinian, also Christians, figured out that there was uh, somehow a plan to bring Jews to Palestine. And just to to bring some history here, there were Jews who lived mm. in Palestine pre-1948 and carried a Palestinian citizenship. Wow. You know, there was around 33,000 Jews who lived in Palestine around the end of the 19th century. Mm-hmm. But after that, of course, the, the whole immigration movement to Palestine started and Jews were able to buy land in Palestine from Palestinians, Muslims and Christians. By the 1905, Palestinian Christians became more aware of the Zionist plans, and they start writing against Christian Zionism. But it's not until the end of World War One and the collapse of the Ottoman Empire that mm. the British came and Palestine became under 
the British mandate after Sykes-Picot uh, agreement. And in 1917, um, it's a famous date for Palestinians, 2nd of November, 1917, when the Minister of Foreign Affairs in, in the British government promised the land to uh, the Jews. And uh, you might know his name. His, his name is uh, Belfort. Uh, yeah. So Belfort Declaration uh, set up uh, the stage for the Jewish immigration to come to Palestine. Around 1936, Palestinians start being more aware of the, the issue that they're having more immigrants, Jewish immigrants coming from all over the world to Palestine. And during that time, many of uh, those immigrants committed uh, genocides against Palestinians. Mm. So in response, the Palestinian revolution started between 1936 and 1939 against uh, the, the immigration, the counter-immigration of the Jews to Palestine. And they're aware of the British plan to give the land to Jewish until that, you know, Palestinians kept fighting until 1947, when the United States and Great Britain um, suggested a plan for partition of Palestine between Jews and Palestinians, which, um, of course, resulted in uh, agreement in the international world to give about 53, 52 or 53% to the Jews and 47% to Palestinians keeping Jerusalem as international city. Right. So that time we can see that um, the Israeli military supported by uh, major powers in the world start taking over many uh, towns and cities in Palestine and um, displacing people. And anyone who... Um wants to read uh, like a first-hand account of that can read blood brothers by Elias Shakur who lived in the area as a, as a boy uh, and experienced that, uh, that displacement himself. But you're, you have family who also experienced that, correct? Yes, that's right. Actually, my uh, maternal family experienced and went through that. My grandmother who was only a teenager back then in 1948 uh, used to live in uh, Jaffa, Tel Aviv uh, nowadays and she had to walk 60 miles on her foot to, for safety in Gaza, carrying her youngest uh, brothers. And um, until now, uh, she's been living this refugee experience as um, she lived in Gaza for about 60 years and then moved to the States. And I was able actually to see her for the first time in 25 years last summer. And I got to talk to her about uh, the experience, the Palestinian displacement experience. And I can't, I was able to feel the pain that mm -hmm. she still carries out of that experience. Um, so when we, uh, every May, the, I guess it's May the 14th, I think, uh, is recognized as uh, Israeli, I guess, Independence Day, um, the birth of the nation, 1948 or whatever. Um, it's it's called something different in Palestinian life. What's it called? It's called Nakba, which means catastrophe. 
So the day that uh, Israel celebrates its independence became a uh, day for Palestinians, uh, for the catastrophe, mourning of lose of their land and uh, their economy, their future. Um, talk a little bit about um, the role, because you've been to the United States, you, you went to school uh, in the States, so you've spent some time here. Uh, but you chose to go back and live uh, in the West Bank and teach teach the Bible. Um, what? Why do uh, American Christians? I, I think, like, really in particular, why? Why do American Christians um, hold? Is it because there's such a, a a firm commitment to dispensationalism that American Christians seem to not see? Palestinian Christians at all? Uh, is it this fervent commitment to Israel because of you know the the possibility of the rapture uh, that like blinds so many to the experience of what we would claim otherwise are our brothers and sisters in Christ? Yes, actually, I can talk about this in two floods. First of all, um, what I found that the American church, especially the evangelical church in the the United States is still influenced by the Puritans and the whole Schofield Bible mm -hmm. uh, started in, by the end of 19th century. And many Christians in the States just take it as it is. You know, I don't judge them, of course. Um, I love the American church and they'll learn a lot uh, from the American church. But at the same time, I, I saw the challenge for Americans that they are not exposed to different different opinions about the Bible and different stories, you know, mm -hmm. especially when it comes to Palestinian Christianity. Because believing that the Bible is the good news for all the world, it feels like Palestinians are exempt from that. Mm -hmm. So the good news that's supposed to be for the whole world is not, it's not including us as Palestinians. And that's what I felt in the States for many uh, occasions where I introduced myself as Palestinian Christian, people were somehow cautious, mm -hmm. and and other times they were like uh, totally ignorant about me being Palestinian Arab and Christian. Wow! And I always got the same question that many uh, of my beers uh, receive uh, or comment. Uh, which is when you converted to Christianity. Yeah. <laughs> and they have this misunderstanding that all Palestinians are Muslim. Yeah. Uh, but actually, there are Palestinian Christians. Um, and Palestinian church has been considered as the forgotten church, mm -hmm. especially by the Western world and the Western church, because of, as I told you, because of the uh, interpretation that they kept hold into tightly uh, for the last uh, century or so. A second flaw that I want to talk to you about is dispensationalism mm -hmm. and seeing Israel as the fulfillment of God's promises in the Old Testament, which is, I think people misunderstand that Israel today is not the same of Israel in the Old Testament. Explain that. Okay, um... Israel today is a political entity that was established on the foundation of Zionism. It's not a biblical uh, restoration, let's let's to say, uh, for the Jews to the land. Mm -hmm. 
that's one. Second, I see that um, Israel today is not a biblical state. It doesn't hold to the biblical, you know, um, biblical truth, biblical law, mm-hmm. in order to 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 serve and to 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 be light to the world. We can read the Bible, and more and more, God talks to Israel to be sold light to the nations. Mm-hmm. And Israel actually nowadays is not a light to the nations. It's not the it's not serving the purpose that God created the Old Testament Israel. That made me question sometimes, like, okay, let's let's read the Bible carefully. Is it really a biblical Israel? And you know, fact after fact, and you can read all over the place the, on the internet. Israel is not a biblical state. Mm. It's more a political entity. So here are three ways that you can support Uncommentary. If you'd like to give a one-time gift of support, go to paypal.me slash uncommentarypod. That's paypal.me slash uncommentarypod. And you can do that there one time for as little as a buck. So uh, take the opportunity to do that. If you'd like to become a patron and be on a monthly donation, you can go to patreon.com slash uncommentary. And for as little as $2 a month, you can be a regular patron for Uncommentary. There's some gift levels there with some stickers and mugs and feel free to choose the one that best suits your budget the third way is by using my amazon shop so that's amazon.com slash shop slash marty duran amazon.com slash shop slash marty duran most of the books from the authors that i have interviewed are there as well as some that i just recommend for your reading pleasure Uh, you get the same low amazon price and it generates a commission to me which helps support uncommentary so i hope you'll take advantage of one of these three because i couldn't do it without you now back to this episode of uncommentary i think um if uh if they were to figure out a way to uh to rebuild the temple Let's say that there was some miraculous, uh, you know, meeting of the minds and they figured out a way to build the temple like a hundred yards to the West or whatever, to where nothing had to change except there was a new building on, on the, the dome of the, the, the Mount there. Um, and I can't even imagine if the very, very conservative, um, wing of Judaism that's there in Israel tried to reestablish like the sacrificial system, for instance, Mm -hmm. the outcry that would take place amongst the Jewish people that weren't as conservative and committed to the Torah Mm -hmm. that are more secular, which is a enormous amount of Israel. Uh, Israeli population is, is more secular. I can't imagine the outcry that would go up just from inside the country if if somebody said, okay, we're going to start slaughtering lambs every day, just like we did in the Old Testament, and, you know, cows, or bring your goat, uh, I mean, it would be, I, I, I just imagine it would be an outcry that would never be resolved, and that they would never start an actual sacrificial system without an enormous amount of, forgive the metaphor here, but bloodshed. Hmm. Do, you, do you see that? That's right, I can see that, you know, uh, seculars in Israel are, I would say, majority, mm-hmm. even, you know. Uh, you can see uh, religious Jews only living in Jerusalem and some kibbutzes and settlement all over uh, the West Bank and Israel. But the big cities, the urban areas, mm-hmm. are more for secular, 
Jews, which I believe um, they won't mind it, but they will have some unease mm. when that would happen. But let me say something else regarding this point, which is the fact that many Christians are supporting this act. Right. Now, even in the United States, there are many Christian science organizations that are pushing for the establishment and rebuilding of the temple as a sign for Jesus' return. Right. Um, I so guess that's, that would fall under like Christian Zionism like John Hagee and others that are very popular. Yeah, and the question comes, you know, if we believe that Jesus is the perfect Lamb of God, you know, and if we believe truly in the New Testament message mm. that Jesus is the only accepted sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice for God for eternity, mm. why we still encourage or would encourage animal sacrifice? Right, right. I um that's one of the, that's one of the points upon which my uh, former theological position. Uh, crashed and could never recover. Uh, I, I could never, uh, well, th the first part of it was when I went back to the Old Testament prophecies about an, another temple, it seemed to uh -huh. me that they were all fulfilled with the temple of Jesus day, that, that there wasn't going to be, I guess, a third or fourth or whatever, uh, based on the prophecies of the Old Testament. That, that did not have to happen, I guess is what I'm saying. And then the thing that you just brought up, why would, how would God use bringing back the incomplete when he's already offered the complete. Uh, and so when those two questions began to connect in my head, uh, I really had to rethink what my eschatology was all about. Uh, uh -huh. And so now I'm just an I don't knowist. I, I, I really don't know enough to have a, a solid position, but I, I certainly had to leave the camp that put so much emphasis on seeing those prophecies the only thing i can say is double fulfilled because they've already been fulfilled mm -hmm. once um yeah. when it did when the scriptures just did not require that interpretation um so that that was really one for me so i want to pivot just a little bit because um this belief whether we say dispensationalism or christian zionism whichever prong we want to take does affect, I think, how American Christians look at the situation in the Middle East today. So when we were talking earlier, we went like up through 1948 and what happened then, the petition, partitioning of the land. Uh, and uh -huh. then, of course, there, were, there was you know, a couple of wars in Yom Kippur in 1967, the Six-Day War. And now there's yeah. been uh, a more than 50-year occupation uh, by the Israeli military in the West Bank. And it, I don't know if, is Gaza considered occupied or just, or is it considered controlled? It's controlled. You know, Gaza is under a siege for more than 12 years. Okay. And, um, but the, yes, the soldiers don't, yeah, they don't patrol inside of Gaza like they patrol inside of the West Bank, right or wrong? Uh, Sometimes. Okay. When they're, yes, okay. sometimes. Okay. Um, so when I met you, it was in March of this year, 2019, um, and I was uh, in the Holy Land, and uh, our team had arranged to come to Bethlehem Bible College and hear a lecture. 
And um, I think I, I think I told you this story. I woke up and checked Facebook that morning, and a friend of mine said, uh, "Please pray for a Palestinian brother whose sister's apartment was destroyed overnight in uh, in a bombing raid in Gaza." And this was, I guess, after some Hamas activity. I think a rocket had actually reached Tel Aviv or something like that. And this was in response. Mm-hmm. And um, and so we walk over to Bethlehem Bible College and um, are introduced to you. And I noticed that you're checking your emails and Twitter and all this, like, right, really, really intently, much more than, like, hey, y'all, come on in and sit down, and we'll start the lecture in five minutes. I mean, you're, like, like really intent. And then it dawned on me that, the president of the college that met us in the lobby said, well, you know, your lecturer today is going to be Yusef and uh, his sister's home was destroyed last night uh, in the bombing. And all that then came together when I saw you checking your emails and checking Twitter and all that. And you were the guy, you were the guy that my friend had requested prayer for and your sister and her family, of course, um, because her home had been destroyed uh, in by the Israeli air force or, uh, or a missile or whatever. Um, so, we talked about that a lot and you gave some like really current information, uh, you know, related to the building of the wall, which a lot of American Christians don't understand at all. Um, the occupation itself, the destruction of your sister's apartment and everything that they owned, including furniture and a refrigerator that she had just purchased. Um, so talk a little bit about what it's like, uh, for, I mean, I know that you can speak for Palestinians generally, and that's awesome, but also for Palestinian Christians who live in uh, this occupation. I think you said your sister's a Sunday school teacher uh, and or has taught Sunday school, um, and, and so her home's destroyed, totally outside of her control. And what what's it like to live in this, and, and what would you ask American Christians or Western Christians uh, to do in response? It's, it's difficult, you know, when you read your Bible and uh, read Jesus telling us to love our enemies and forgive our enemies, but at the same time you're living in a situation where you are confronting, uh, you are suffering because of your enemies every single day and every single moment someday, sometimes. It becomes tough tasks, you know, questioning God, how could I do that? And it's, it's for me, for many Palestinian Christians, that we needed to reconcile our identity as Palestinians who went through the occupation and its challenges with the Bible and our identity as Christians. And honestly, without the work of God and the Holy Spirit in us, we wouldn't have been able to do that. Mm. Uh, about 10 years ago, I was going through a checkpoint, and the Israeli military asked me to take off all my clothes, and that was in December of 2006. And I had to take off all my clothes for eight hours mm. in open present. After eight hours, I started questioning God, how could you ask me to love them? And you can see how much injustice I had to endure. Mm. It took me months to to pray through that and ask for healing. And in one 
event that I had an encounter with Israelis, the Lord challenged me just to show love, mm -hmm. to show love and only love. And I felt that it wasn't something to, sh to show them or to demonstrate for them, but mm -hmm. it's something that God wants to teach me through. And it was a turning place. And at the same time, it's happening now with my sister. And uh, as you've shared that my sister lost her apartment overnight, you know, uh, with no clear reason. My sister is a Sunday school teacher. She teaches uh, a preschool classes for um, for a Christian school in Gaza. So she's not a terrorist. Mm -hmm. She doesn't have any connection to terrorism. And she lost everything. Overnight, she became homeless mm -hmm. uh, with her husband and three young kids. But after a while, I, 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 after two days, you remember how intense was? Yeah. Uh, for me, uh, two days, my sister was able to go and just see where uh, where was her apartment and found actually two items, two unique items that survived the bombing. And they were Bibles, mm. two copies of a Bible. Wow. One is literally was was open on the book of Psalms. <laughs> And she felt like, and she literally told me that. She said, like, I felt that God wants to bring this healing, mm -hmm. this comfort to me. And since then, uh, every every time I talk to her, she says, and she she has more faith that God will provide and God will fulfill her needs. And, and she, that what happened to her won't stop her from pursuing what she was doing. And one of the things that actually she lost was her computer. Wow. Uh, she just started her master's in Christian leadership in order to help um, developing her Sunday school ministry and uh, to serve the small Christian community in Gaza. And all her study were there on that computer that wow. was destroyed. So it was tough, but, you know, God is, is helping. Mm. Us. God is empowering us not only to be um, to be loving, but also to be peacemakers. Mm -hmm. How we can bridge the gap for many other Palestinian Christians through our experience of suffering and pain, but also with Jesus in the midst of all of that. How we can be peacemakers and healers to the people around us. I want to... Um that that's awesome i mean uh, <laughs> i'm i'm sitting here as you're talking thinking uh i mean we in america would just struggle so hard with that that whole concept um of of being peacemakers if we were constantly under that kind of pressure and i want to back up just a second to talk about what a checkpoint is because you know in the states we get in our cars we go where we want to as long as we have the gas and we haven't hit anybody, uh, we can drive from, I can drive from Nashville to California and either tell everybody that I know or tell nobody that I know and never have to stop at a police station or check in or, you know, have a, any kind of transportation paperwork or anything like that. So just to give uh, listeners who may not be familiar uh, kind of an idea, um, the West Bank is covered in what are officially known as checkpoints. 
And a checkpoint uh-huh. is manned by the IDF, which is the Israeli Defense Forces. And they're usually um, uh, anywhere from one to five people, soldiers, uh, at a uh-huh. checkpoint. They're heavily armed. Uh, I mean, they are ready for any kind of thing that might break out to start, you know, war right there on the spot and call for reinforcements. Um most Palestinians, if not all Palestinians in the West Bank, are disarmed. There, there certainly isn't an open display of firearms. I'm not saying there's no pistol somewhere, but there certainly is no open display of firearms at all. Um, and these checkpoints are designed, uh, from the Israeli point of view, they're designed to make sure no, no terrorism or violence is going on. But from a day-to-day point of view for Palestinians, the checkpoints are designed to hinder your movement, to slow you down when you're trying to go somewhere. Um, I was reading just, I guess it was just this morning, about a a young man, 15, I guess, who was being held uh, at a West Bank town south of Jerusalem. And there's pictures of this. He's blindfolded and handcuffed with his hands cuffed behind him, and he's running away from either a checkpoint or some kind of an arrest. And um, the IDF soldier in charge shot him twice. Now, thankfully, he lived, shot him in the legs. Thankfully, he lived. But uh, uh-huh. people people being arrested at checkpoints for nothing more than mouthing off uh, at a IDF personnel is a common occurrence. People being taken into custody for this, that, or the other is a common occurrence. Checkpoints being closed. So if you're trying to go visit someone that's, you know, 30 minutes away and you have to go through a checkpoint and for no announced reason, the checkpoint is closed and you don't find out until you get there, then your plan to go visit them has been, has been altered. Um, people trying to get to their own olive orchards, uh, that the wall, the boundary wall has been built between their home and their property, their farming property. And they have to go through a checkpoint to be able to, to go to work. I, I mean, there's so much restrictiveness that goes on with checkpoints that, People in the States don't even have a framework to understand what that would be like. You know, if if I said, just imagine that the Russian army had occupied your hometown or your state and had been there for 50 years and you couldn't go five miles without checking in with a bunch of heavily armed Russian soldiers who asked you where you were going, why you were going, demanded to see paperwork, and then could at the whim tell you to turn around and go home, you can't go. And you've got no recourse. There, there's just no option to do that. And that's what you guys are living with every day. Is that right? Yes. Um, let me explain it more okay. about even how the West Bank looks like. You know, can you imagine that the West Bank looks like an open presence surrounded by a wall goes 441 miles mm-hmm. around the West Bank? and is about 25 feet high. Mm-hmm. Within that wall is many of the Palestinian cities and Palestinian territory, which is divided to three uh, areas, A and B and C. You know, And A is fully Palestinian with uh, Palestinian authority. Um, B area, it's more like, we can't say it's, it's Palestinian with the light Palestinian authority presence, but also controlled by the Israelis. Mm-hmm. And the Israelis, the Israeli army is allowed to go into it mm-hmm. anytime they wish. And then sea area, which is Palestinian uh, inhabitants, but it's Israeli land. 
or sometimes they will they like to call it no man's land yeah and almost none or nothing of palestinian presence and between those areas there are checkpoints checkpoints in the west bank there are about 250 checkpoints which strict the palestinian movement from town to town for example if i want to travel from Bethlehem to Hebron, which is only 30 miles away, it would take me sometimes up to two or three hours. Mm -hmm. And if I want to go to Ramallah, which is uh, somehow the political capital nowadays for Palestinian Authority, and I want to do any uh, paperwork, mm -hmm. it's only 40, uh, it's only actually um, about 30 miles too. And in between, there is about three or four checkpoints. Mm -hmm. Two are permanent and two are temporary. Mm -hmm. And you have to go through that. And some days the soldiers just shut down or close the gate. So the checkpoint is closed. You're not allowed to move. And I have friends who stuck at a checkpoint for about eight hours. Wow. Only to drive 30 miles. Which, you know, I lived in the States, 30 miles, it's it's like 30 minutes. Yeah, yeah. Well, it depends on who's driving, but yes. <laughs> yeah, you know, and it just just for me, you know, uh, sharing my experience, when I went to the States, uh, our first day in the States, we were uh, driving through New York, going from JFK to, to uh, upstate New York, and... On the way, there was um, Toll's booth. Yeah. And my wife was really surprised, and she was a little bit anxious that there is checkpoints yeah. also yeah. in the States. So we carry this over everywhere we go, because yeah. we have this fear that we will be restricted in our movement. And as you've shared, people get, get shot and killed on those checkpoints. I remember uh, many stories of women who were pregnant and about to deliver their babies and they couldn't make it through the checkpoint and passed away on the checkpoint. Mm. Um, about three months ago, um, my wife used to work in Bethany, which is only 10 miles away from Bethlehem. And one day, uh, a young man was crossing the checkpoint and he carried a black bag in his hand. And the soldiers asked him, what he was carrying and he couldn't hear them mm -hmm. so he moved further toward them just in order to listen mm -hmm. they shot him yeah and they they closed the checkpoint for a few hours yeah and my wife was was wasn't able to return to bethlehem because of that um when we were <clears throat> when we were there in march there was a um an incident in one of the refugee camps, uh, in Bethlehem, um, not, not very far at all from where we were staying, where there was an incursion overnight, uh, suspicion of, you know, some kind of illegal activity. And the IDF went in and ended up shooting a, um, a young man. I think he was 17 or 18 years old, uh, had a medical, medical vest, was a trained, I think he was a trained, I guess we would call them paramedics. I don't, I don't know if that's the, mm -hmm. the terminology there, but, um, and I think he was, he had actually gone in kind of at the end of the incursion to see if anybody was injured, if anybody had been injured, what kind of help they needed. Uh, and he ended up being shot. 
Um, and we, we didn't find out about that. It happened overnight. We didn't find out until the next day when we were out in the town. Um, and when we were headed back to, uh, where we were staying, there was just this, I mean, it was a, there was a tension along all the sidewalks and the streets that was so thick. Um, it, it was, I mean, I don't want to say it was like after nine 11 because that's a unique event, but the tension was there and, and it's like palpable. People are frustrated. They're, they're both angry and sad. Um, you know, it's, it's like almost like a tinderbox. And I was, I was thinking, okay, there's going to be protests before the week is out. There's going to be a demonstration of some kind, uh, which never happened. And I was kind of thankful for that because that, you know, those can be used as pretexts for more violence. Um, but I mean, it's just when there's, when there's no ability to control your future and there's little ability to control your life, um, the, the occupiers are driving uh, so much of the, the discontent um, and the frustration. Uh, it, it just wounds me uh, what you and your sister and your family uh, and your spiritual family uh, have to live through there. And I just, I, I mean, I really want American Christians to understand that you're my brother in Christ, just like my pastor here at home is. And, uh, Palestinian Christians who are in Gaza and the West Bank are as much a part of the family of God as, you know, Billy Graham or, or name your other favorite evangelist. Um, and that we need to, we need to pay attention about what you guys are enduring. The Bible speaks very clearly to this, uh, that we are to remember those who are in prison, remember those who are suffering as if we are with you. And so I would implore uh, folks who are listening to uh, to put Palestinian Christians and the Palestinian Church right near the top of your prayer list, and do not do not erase it because they're going to need prayer for a long, long time. Yes, of course we need their prayer, and I invite uh, people to come and visit Palestine. You know, mo- most of people who come visit only the touristy sites. Yeah. And they don't get a chance to meet people. And it's very important for Palestinians, Christ, Palestinian Christians to feel that they are in the minds and hearts and prayers mm-hmm. or the global church. Yeah. And it, it breaks my heart when I see that many evangelicals who come around in Bethlehem and I see them in the Nativity Church or somewhere else. And they don't get to see Palestinian Christians pray with them and pray for them. Mm-hmm. And see how vibrant is the Christian community in Palestine, you know. Our ministry of being witness to God and His work in our midst. And, of course, for our our neighbors, you know, mm-hmm. Muslims and Jews. Uh, you know, being a, a salt and light, sometimes it's not easy. Mm-hmm. And being carried in a prayer and support by the the global church is something that's significant and important. And of course, the Bible teaches us how, as a whole body, we need we need each other. Um, so I mentioned uh, Blood Brothers by Elias Shakur, um, Whose Promised Land. I think Colin Chapman is the author of that. 
what are a couple of other books that you'd recommend for people to kind of get a uh, an idea of what's going on and, and will help them learn possibly some other theological uh, viewpoints? A great book that I would recommend is by Munder Isaac, uh, From Land to Lands, uh, which is a biblical theology about the promised land. Mm-hmm. It's a great book uh, just to understand and be exposed to Palestinian theology of the land. Of course, there's The Land of Christ by Johanna Katanashu. And I'll put, these, uh, I'll put these on the page, uh, the Amazon links on the page for the, the names that I can't spell yet. <laughs> yes, and there are many Palestinian Christians, actually, who've been writing. Uh, one of them uh, is um, Reverend Dr. Um, Naimatik, who wrote Palestinian Liberation Theology in 1989, mm. and uh, in 2017 he published another book about Palestinian liberation theology. It would be a great resource also to look into. And uh, through my enemy's eyes, I, I can't I can't uh, forget that, uh, by Salim Munayya. Mm-hmm. Because it brings Palestinian voice with a Messianic Jew voice wow. together uh, and seeking for reconciliation between two people. That's fantastic. Well, Yusef, we could talk for, you know, like another 12 hours probably and never even cover the same ground. Um, and maybe we will at some point. Who knows? Um, I, w- I would love to, to talk more and get, get more into every aspect of what we've talked about today. Uh, but, man, I cannot thank you enough, and uh, I'm really glad that you were able to join me today. Thank you so much, Marty. It was great honor and pleasure meeting you in Bethlehem and now uh, through Skype. And I pray that uh, God will bless you, bless your uh, audience, and I encourage you to pray for Palestinian church and Palestinian people. Amen. As uh, we seek to see God's kingdom come to Palestine, Israel, with peace and glory. Thank you for listening to Uncommentary. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. When you get a chance, if you would rate and review uh, Uncommentary in your favorite podcatcher, mostly iTunes, I guess, but uh, whichever one you use, whether it's Overcast or Podbean, if they have a rating system or review system, if you would take a few moments to do that, that'd be awesome. It takes about 10 seconds to uh, to rate and about three sentences to review. Um, doesn't, doesn't take a lot. So we're over 60 on ratings and almost a 30, I think, on reviews on iTunes. If we can get to 150, respectively, that'll be awesome. Uh, if you're interested in supporting Uncommentary financially, uh, you can do a one-time gift at paypal.me slash uncommentarypod. That's paypal.me slash uncommentarypod. Uh, if you'd like to become a patron for as little as 2 bucks a month, swag level 3 bucks a month, you can do that at Patreon, patreon.com slash uncommentary. That's patreon.com slash uncommentary. Now, if you'd like to advertise, and I can always use advertisers, then email me, martyduran at yahoo.com, and I'll get you a rate sheet. You can follow me on Twitter at Marty Duran. Follow the podcast at Uncommentary Pod. And tell your friends and relatives and everyone you know to listen to Uncommentary. Till next episode, this is Marty Duran for Uncommentary. Sola Deo Gloria.